Welcome to season three of Sorting Pen, the California Cattlemen podcast. Every day, the California Cattlemen's Association is sorting through the issues impacting California's ranching families and producers. To communicate those issues, discuss solutions, and keep ranchers current on the hot topics, CCA leadership developed this podcast and is continuing it in 2023. In each episode, we will be talking with CCA leadership and leading experts on issues specific to ranching and producing beef in California. Tune in every other Monday to hear updates on legislative and regulatory fronts in Sacramento, deep dives into current events, challenges, and more. Well, welcome back to another episode of Sorting Pen. If you missed our last episode, be sure to go check it out. We had an interview with Anthony Sornetta, the CCA Fire Subcommittee Chair. He gave us an update on the state's wildfire resiliency efforts and kind of what went on over the winter as far as prescribed burning, burn boss classes and livestock pass programs. Go ahead and check that out and hear a great update from him on kind of what he's expecting for this fire outlook to look like. But today we're going to turn over the page to San Diego and we are here for CCA's annual feeder meeting. So we're just wrapping up. Yesterday was the full day program. Today's the feeder council business meeting and then everyone will be on their way. Before we do that, uh, I wanted to check in and kind of hear an update from the feeders. Uh, We don't get to talk about feeder issues a lot on this podcast, but annually down here, I do like to bring it up. So Jodian Cameron, the feeder council chair is joining me today. So thanks for making time, Jodian, after a very busy day yesterday. Uh, Thank you for having me, Katie. Yeah, absolutely. Maybe for those of you, since sometimes we don't see you as much up in Sacramento, who don't know you, let's hear a little bit about yourself before we jump into it. Jodan Cameron. I'm a managing partner of Mesquite Cattle Feeders in Brawley, California. Uh, we have operation in Brawley as well as Dodge City, Kansas. And um, we have our custom cattle feeders. We feed ranges of cattle from Holstein steer calves to Angus Holstein crossbreds, Mexican cattle, native California beef calves uh, all over. We market to most of the major packers on the West Coast. Been in operation for close to 70 years now. Thanks for making time uh, to be on the podcast, but also to chair Feeder Council. It's nice to have you involved. And I know this meeting went off really well. Um, Lots of great speakers. We can go into that a little bit. For those of you that don't know what feeder meeting is, like I said, it's an annual meeting. Feeders from Brawley, but also from Arizona and kind of all over come to hear the updates, kind of what the pulse is going on right now. Uh, But there's also a lot of animal health companies here. Anyone that I'm missing, Jodan? No, there's a lot of like allied industry people here from the pharmaceutical companies, uh, feed companies, the commodity traders, a lot of trade companies, things like that. I guess kind of being on the West Coast in the feeding industry, we're kind of segregated kind of out here by ourselves, the desert Southwest, and then some feeders in the Central Valley, California. Obviously, we're not in a big feeding state like Texas, Kansas, or Nebraska. We have a lot of good qualities and a lot of reasons we feed cattle out here. From yesterday's program, is there anything that really stood out to you as far as trends um, that we were talking about or any speakers you want to highlight? Well, I I mean, the first three speakers that we had, uh, Spencer Prosser, Patrick Linnell, and um, Andrik Payan, when you're speaking about like what's going to happen with the cow herd over the next couple of years and the drought cycle and the cat, they basically the cattle cycle just seems like our numbers are down. The supply is not there. Me, myself, as a feed yard manager, I see it on a daily basis. I don't get offered the cattle we used to get offered. The contract, even the Holstein calves, you know, the amount of Holstein calves in California is changing. A lot of those cattle are turning. They're being bred with Angus now. And those cattle are eligible to be fed in Nebraska, Kansas, Texas, where prior years, those Holstein cattle were kind of just kept down here in the desert southwest. Our numbers are going to get shorter. 
it seems like our roughage situation in the southwest as well is going to be a little better and the San Joaquin Valley, I think. We're going to see a, kind of a decrease in corn prices over the next year, and that's the way it's looking right now. And so we should have a good year, you know, after interest is hard for feeding cattle right now. And just like any business, I guess. So, yeah, those first three speakers were really good. I think yeah, lots of graphs like and them. numbers. <laughs> kind of after we got out of the numbers and graphs and outlooks, we did have a global outlook from Greg Dowd, um, which was interesting hearing kind of about how China is impacting the world, yep. especially ag markets. Yep. I also was pretty interested in the Andy Hogan spoke on some consumer polling that was done here in California about cattle and confinement cattle and calf hutches, feedlots, dry lots, whatever you want to call it. From the feeder's perspective, you always think like the consumer's so uneducated and that, oh, they're not going to like this because they don't understand it. But I don't think we're that far off from where we need to be. We just need to do more education, more outreach to these people. And I think they can understand the life cycle cattle in California, be it a native beef calf or a dairy calf, why we do what we do, why those cattle are weaned when they're weaned. If the conditions to go into that if it's drought if it's a good grass year and however that works you know and why those cattle are fed the way they're fed in the feedlot because we're trying to reach those desirable carcass characteristics and we're trying to make the cattle perform i thought that was interesting yeah that was a cattle council funded focus group so they said they pulled over a thousand online surveys to get Mm -hmm. this information and then they had a couple in-person focus groups and a couple virtual with people all throughout the state. So good to get that info back. Mm-hmm. And like you said, I think we're not that far off. People can just put a face to the product and kind of yep. understand it firsthand. So that's encouraging. Yep. I thought that was a good way to end as well. One thing that I've really liked about CCA, I've just noticed over the years and being involved. And my dad was a president of the feeder council, I don't know, 10 years ago. It's been a while. Us as feeders, we like I said, we're down in our little area and it seems like you never really get out and it's hard to get up to Sacramento and hard to do that kind of things. And with CCA, we always know you guys are bringing the issues to us. Hey, this is what we're working on and this is what we need to work on. And that's why it's extremely valuable to us. Yeah. I think it's good that CCA gets down to Brawley once in a while to see what you guys are doing in Mm -hmm. little feeder bubble, but also good to just kind of have an update from you. Obviously a lot of cow calf producers listen to this podcast, but it's good to keep everyone connected since obviously we all are connected in the industry, even though sometimes feels a little separate. Last year at this meeting, we talked a lot about kind of the rail issues that you guys were experiencing. Trevor and Jesse came on the podcast and they were talking about being in these terrible situations where you guys were going like hours and possibly running out of feed. I know CCA kind of helped resolve some of that and it's kind of simmered down a little bit. Can we just get an update on kind of what the railroad issues like now? Well, uh, rails seems like they caught up. Uh, there's the Union Pacific and the BNSF that come into California. I think into the San Joaquin Valley, the major rail that brings grain in would be the UP, as well as into the Imperial Valley. The rail just had a lot of labor issues. They parked a lot of trains. They pulled trains off hauling grain and commodities into hauling goods out of the port to the East Coast, to the Midwest. And so it was pretty dire for a while there. It seemed like I heard of some larger dairy operations and maybe a couple chicken houses in the San Joaquin Valley ran out of actual grain and didn't have it to feed their animals. I don't think that happened to anyone in Imperial Valley, but I mean, we were on a day-to-day basis. Thankfully, with the help of Billy and a lot of phone calls with UP, with the California Feed and Grain, uh, we were able to push these rail companies to get, get their stuff together, basically. So we're in pretty good shape right now. 
good. That's not a good way to live day to day. No. I mean, even as a human, <laughs> not a good way to live. But when you're taking care of that many animals. Yes. California would be obviously a net importer on a large scale of feed grains. Sure. When you got 40,000 hungry critters and 55 to 65% of the diet is that grain, be it corn, wheat, whatever you're feeding. Yeah, it's pretty vital to make sure you got plenty on hand. Glad that got resolved. Something else that we talked about yesterday and we we're always talking about in terms of feeding cattle is E. coli. And Dr. Rob Atwell was here talking about some of his research on leafy greens and E. coli and um, how the wind blows. And um, that was a good update. Maybe we could get a little update from you on that as well. So the E. coli cattle being fed, cattle on pasture in proximity to leafy greens is an issue that doesn't really just affect the Imperial Valley. I mean, it's Salinas, Santa Maria, kind of all over. From a cattle guy's perspective, you kind of feel like they're just looking for someone to point the blame at. Thankfully, there has not been an outbreak tied back to a feedlot. A feed yard in the Yuma, Arizona area, was the finger was pointed at it after a large outbreak in 2018. FDA did an exhaustive investigation into it, can never pinpoint the actual yard as the culprit. With Dr. Atwill's help, and the study that was funded through uh, Cattle Council, we were uh, able to actually get some peer-reviewed data to show that what these salad companies were saying, that all this E. coli, if it's a stack E. coli or 0157H7, it's not coming off these feed yards through fugitive dust. It still hasn't really stopped the salad companies from putting their barriers. And in the Imperial Valley, I want to say there's about 440,000 irrigated acres and there's probably 16 or 17 confined animal feeding operations that would be of scale, uh, sure. over 10,000 head or whatever, you'd, however you'd look at that. These companies would come out and they'd go, okay, you guys have, they tell the farmers you have to be a mile from a feed yard. Then your irrigation source water needs to be a mile from the feed yard. Then last year, two years ago, they came out and said you need to be two miles from the feed yard. And meanwhile, the farmers, most of the farmers in our valley feed cattle, we're all in business together. Yeah. They grow summer roughage. After lettuce harvest in December, they're planting to Durham. After Durham's harvested, they're planting to Sedan. And th- all those crops are either going to the feed yard or they're going to the mills. So we all work together and these guys are upset. They're going, hey, you know, my ground that should be worth $15,000 an acre is now only worth $7,000 an acre because I can't grow these crops. I can't grow produce on it. Because they're uh, too close to a feed yard. Too close to the feed yard. When we met last year here or a couple years ago, I think I can't remember which feeder said it, but he goes, we need to fund the study. It might not be good. It might come back and say, hey, there's shigatoxin or 0157H7 coming off these feed yards and they can spread around. And But we just decided we need to do it. We need to have actual data instead of being like some of these other company, companies that were just coming out with these. Uh, you need to be two miles. You need to be three miles. The data was good. Uh, we met with Dr. Atwill group of produce growers on Thursday, or excuse me, on Wednesday in uh, El Centro. They were happy with the results. Now it's on them to push the salad companies and the packers and shippers, because those are the guys setting the precedents on what needs to happen. But it's like we told them, the beef industry spent billions of dollars after e- the E. coli issues with Jack in the Box in the 90s to figure out a kill step. Uh, lactic acid washes, feeding direct-fed microbials, whatever that may be. The only way to get the risk to zero is to tell people to not eat lettuce. If not, you have to figure out, they're going to have to figure out on their end what that kill step is. And 
Yeah, they need to go back and look at their supply chain. Yes. And figure it out, maybe rather than pointing fingers. Yes. In the Pearl Valley, it's two things that they're worried about. Romaine, lettuce, and sure. spinach. But there's been outbreaks every year. Salinas Valley, uh, Santa Maria, Arizona. And uh, somehow it always gets blamed on cattle, even if there's not any cattle around. Yeah. And there's, there's, I mean, I don't think there's, as far as I know, there's no feedlots in Salinas. I know there's a lot of cattle around there, but um, E. coli is something that people carry naturally. A lot of uh, pets carry it, coyotes, birds. Wild pigs. Wild pigs, you know. So it's just one of those things that we're going to have to continue doing work on. But the study that was done by Dr. Atwill and his people at the Western Center for Food Safety at UC Davis, I mean, it really helps us as an industry when – we're getting this blame for something that we didn't do. We can go, here's our peer-reviewed data. And those guys don't have any peer-reviewed data. <laughs> yeah, and I think you made that clear. Someone yesterday asked the question, well, what happened to science or what happened yeah. to people following science? Because Dr. Rowell was talking about kind of the submission process of getting the research into a journal. And one of the journals came back a little negative. But he said, well, you guys have the data. You did the study and yeah. they don't have it. This issue, since we started working on it and... In our talks with the growers in the Imperial Valley and those growers, most of the guys who, who farm produce down there, they farm produce in the San Joaquin Valley or the Salinas area or in Arizona as well. There's a lot of bias there and there's a lot of, uh, they, it's just like looking to pass the buck. And I wouldn't say that, that that's coming from the growers, but that's yeah. coming from the higher ups, the, the, the packers, the shippers. And it's been really good doing the study. When the, the, the data got peer reviewed and published, we sent it out and there was our, there was immediate pushback. Oh, well, that's not how the study should have been done. Well, put your money where your mouth is and do your own study. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, by doing that, then you could come back and say, well, we disagree with your data. Right now, when it's just pointing fingers and not doing anything, that's why, that's what we've been working on. And we, I think we made the decision four or five years ago at this meeting to do this. And there's a lot of misconceptions, I think, about just raising cattle in California in general. When I've done tours with some of the bigger salad companies of our feedlot, told them about BQA, all the best management practices we have to do that we're, I mean, we're an FDA audited feed mill. So I get audited by the FDA, which is not a fun process. I'm sure it's not. <laughs> we're a Colorado Regional Water Quality Board. No runoff, rainwater runoff, anything like that. You know, once it's on our property, you can never leave. Dust abatement, because we have a I think everyone in California has to deal with dust abatement. Yeah, it's kind of like you could see a light bulb go off in their head like, oh, these guys are regulated just like we are. And it's like, yes, we are. This is not, I think the common misconception is that we just have a bunch of cattle in a pen and we go 4K off into it. And they, yeah. you know. They truly think it's the Wild West. Yes, yes. So. But if anyone's ever been, like I visited your yard, mm -hmm. it's definitely not. Yeah. It's like a well-operated, yep. lots of steps. Nice to hear that that got funded. Thanks to the Cattle Council on that. A good example of some of the work they're doing on research. Two other big topics I'm hearing a lot about, specifically in the news, the Colorado River is in very low supply of water mm -hmm. right now. Uh, we've been reading a lot about cuts to Arizona. We know the states have been trying to get together on a plan, and they finally did. Just wondering kind of what the feeders in Imperial have been talking about in regards to that. Are there big concerns about that? So yeah, that's from your point. The lower basin states are going to have to conserve two and a half million acre foot of water by the end of 2024. For the Imperial County, 
I'm not sure what that equates to on an acre foot per basis. And I don't even think our local irrigation districts know that yet. Kind of the talk is that they're going to do look into doing like a summer fallowing program. So when I talk about like produce crop coming out and then doing two crops after that, I don't think that's going to be happening anymore. I think you're going to see a lot of hay dried up in the summertime, which when it's 112 degrees, our production goes down anyways. Sure. But it's going to produce less dry cow hay and less grinding hay for the feedlots. It's something we got to be cognizant of. I mean, for the Imperial Valley, for Yuma, Arizona, that whole area, I mean, for Mexicali, and that's a city of a million people, we're all 100% reliant on the river. We have to make sure that the river stays healthy. Thankfully, this year, just like I think the Sierras, it's they got a really good snowpack. Hopefully, we could continue and not go back into the drought cycle that we just kind of came out of. Yeah, I think it would be nice in the last drought. We weren't out of it very long before we went back and do yeah. it. So I think we would all enjoy a few more years yep. of not being in that. We get a lot of pushback on, you know, why does water go to agriculture? At the same token, you could say, well, San Diego, Los Angeles, Phoenix, there's just all this growth. Cities are growing, subdivisions, and, you know, agriculture to me is a benefit, beneficial use of it. And create making feed to feed cattle feeding cattle, growing crops. It's a beneficial use of the water. It's not just watering a lawn. Granted, if you live in LA, San Diego, or Phoenix, you probably don't think like that. I think part of our deal is that cattle get a bad rep if it's if they drink 20 to 30, 40 gallons of water a day and they eat X amount of feed and that feed takes X amount of water to grow in the feedlot setting. It's just the more education we could do to the consumers about how cattle are upcyclers, kind of the, the human byproducts that we use, human waste byproducts like bakery meal, dry distillers. I think that gets people's eyes opened up where they go, oh, okay, you know, it's not literature. They're not just growing corn to feed them or alfalfa. Alfalfa specifically is the one I've seen get yes. beat up yep. quite a bit. So maybe some education on that mm-hmm. we need to probably do, but yep. I'm sure you don't have time to work in a full uh, communications <laughs> plan into your day. So maybe the Cattle Council or Cattlemen's Foundation can help you out on that. The other issue quickly before we wrap up here is enteric emissions, which some people don't really even know what that is. But if you've heard about maybe some research done for dairies on feeding seaweed to reduce emissions, that's what we're talking about. I think that's continuing to be a big conversation. It was a conversation in the legislature. I know there was a bill that you were working on with Billy on that. Can we get a little update on that and kind of from the feeder's perspective, the feelings on regulating or mandating enteric emissions? Yeah, so uh, Billy and Kirk gave all the feeders an update uh, a couple months ago. There's been a lot of talk very recently. Uh, there was a big thing at UC Davis a month ago, the dairy groups that are pushing for a mandated deal where we're going to have to feed any XYZ product. They're going to try to incentivize feeders, dairymen, to feed that product. But from the feed yards, pers- cattle guys' perspective on our end, everyone's worried about that. We're worried about a mandate, worried about feeding a product that we don't know how it's going to affect performance in the feedlot, performance on the rail. By working with Billy and Kirk, we were able to say that we don't want that, and they pushed back on it. I don't know that we're 100% exempt right now, but yeah. uh, but that's that's the goal we're working to. You're trying to carve out beef and beef, feeders yes. out of that. Yep. And I guess the whole goal of the enteric emissions would be to reduce, g- to reduce greenhouse gas. Yes. I think that's going to continue to be a big topic. I had this discussion with the feeder yesterday, and uh, they get worried when you get a group at like a UC Davis or any school for that matter. And you have 40, 50 academics or people from allied industry type deal. 
but you don't have any actual feeders in the room, people who, who do the business, you know, they're, they're worried about what comes out of meetings like that because those people aren't paying for the product. They're not having to implement it into their programs. That's why it's good to have you guys <laughs> because you're fighting for us. So I say it a lot, but a lot of well-intended ideas don't always end yes. up working out well without people like you at the table. Mm-hmm. We'll continue to watch that and make sure that it does not become a mandate. Anything else happening down in Brawley or in the theater world that you want to update us on? No, I think that'd be that'd be about it. So good. Well, lots of good work this week, Jodiana. Thank you. Thanks for all your help with planning speakers. I know you and Lisa and Mike Sulpizier, the vice chair, and Billy worked really hard to put this meeting on. Congrats on a good meeting, and we'll have one more year with Jodiana's theater council chair. So we look forward to that. All right. Thank you, Katie. Thanks, Jodiana.